Okay, we are back. We're still in message one. Uh, people here of Israel's uh, judgment and salvation. We're looking at the judgment section of, that goes 1, 1 down through 2, 11. We've made it up through 2, 5. We're moving into 2, 6 through 11, the last part of this, this first judgment section here, um, where we've seen Micah rebuke the oppressive rulers, and now we're going to see Micah expose the oppressive prophets. Okay, so... Um, God has said that judgment is coming because of, of idolatry and immorality. Um, but the people don't like that. Uh, the people, they don't want prophets who are going to tell them bad news. Right? So they, they can't imagine that God would judge them for sin. That's, that's not the God that they believe in. All right? So God is going to put on blast here these, these prophets who are able to be moved by money. Okay? Look at verse... uh, Let's just read 7 down through 11 uh, to hear it, and then we'll go back and and think about it together. Verse 7... Or verse 6. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. I mean, don't tell us judgment's coming. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these His deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor. Arise and go! For this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness, it destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for these people. So these guys, they like a certain kind of prophet. They don't like this Micah cat because Micah is talking about judgment. Judgment? It kind of makes me... I just don't like that. makes me uncomfortable. Right? So verse... Verse 7 here, has God grown impatient? Is judgment really His doing? You see, these false, false teachers, would, they would lie about God and they would say, God wouldn't bring judgment or we don't need to talk about judgment. So remember, this is a time of prosperity. It's a time of peace. Everything is, is smooth. Metro's on time all the time. Everything's wonderful. The last thing you need is some prophet coming in being like, God's about to send Assyria down here to obliterate everything because of our idolatry and our injustice. People are like, what? Shut up. We don't want to hear this. And you know what's... We don't exactly have all of the words that these prophets would say. Jeremiah talks about them. Ezekiel talks about them. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Right? But let me give you an example of what it might look like for these prophets to use the Scripture, yet lie. Maybe their sermon would be on Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Speaking of Moses' encounter with the Almighty, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
Oh, and the synagogue says, hey, man, we love that sermon, preacher. That's a good one right there. God's so patient. He's so good. God is love, love, love. Let's sing another song. That's good. And God is gracious. And He does love to forgive. The problem is, there's more to that verse. See, the rest of the verse says this. But, He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, God also promised that He would judge people for their sin and that their sins will have lasting effects on generations to come. Now, they want prophets who won't say that kind of stuff. And these prophets aren't saying it. Because God accuses the leaders here. Uh, verse 8, being an enemy of the people and robbing the people. Verse 9, driving out women and children from their homes and robbing them of dignity. Verse 10, God says, you're going to go into exile. You're going to go into uncleanness outside the land. The response to that is verse 6, do not preach. Leaders call for these true prophets like Micah to be silenced. And then verse 11, call to turn up the false prophets proclaiming false realities. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, which is empty deceit, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for these people. You see, the people in Micah's day, they want prophets who will excuse and overlook their indulgence and their immorality. Just make them feel comfortable in their idolatry. That's not just an Old Testament thing. God warned that people in every age want these kinds of preachers. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I used this illustration a couple weeks ago in a Sunday morning sermon, but see if this sounds anything like Micah's day with these prophets who God calls out. In a 2016 CBS morning interview, Sunday morning interview, um, Joel Osteen was asked uh, about how he got to be America's pastor. Um, And he was asked specifically about the accusation from some that he doesn't preach on hell and judgment. This is what he says. You know, it's not hellfire and brimstone. But I, I, I say most people are beaten down enough by life. They have already feel guilty enough. They're not doing what they should, raising their kids. We can all find reasons. So I want them to come to Lakewood, which is the name of his church in Houston, or our meetings, and I want them to be lifted up. To say, you know what? I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better. And he says, you know, I think that motivates you to do better. Osteen says things that are true. But he doesn't say everything. And the things that you admit are just as much as saying that they're not there. And that's dangerous. It's the same kind of prophet that the people in Micah's day wanted. They wanted somebody who would make them feel good. Somebody who would inspire them to do better. 
For those of you who aren't familiar with my discussions about Joel Osteen, I've listened to a lot of his sermons. Because I, I do use him as examples from time to time. I've listened to a lot of his sermons. And I, he's a very, he's a great motivational speaker. He's a, he's, he has a really good gift. I've listened to a lot of them. I've never heard him talk about hell. I've never heard him talk about judgment. I've never heard him talk about sin. Mistakes, struggles, yes, sometimes, but not too much. You just can't leave that stuff out. It's got to be both. Because that's what God says. In Amos chapter 2, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. One of God's judgments on Israel was to remove prophets who would tell them the truth. God says, you don't like, you don't like truth? Fine. I'm going to give you a bunch of people who are going to tell you what you want to hear all the way to hell. Judgment will fall on you. This is what was happening in Micah's day. They wanted prophets who would pacify them in their sin. But Micah was not that kind of prophet. He would speak both of judgment, but also of salvation. Judgment will fall on them, but God will also faithfully deliver them. So what I'm going to do is we're going to look at verses 12 and 13. This is the the salvation part, the first salvation part in this this first message. Um, And then we'll take some questions to see if you have questions about what I've said here. So what he's going to do is he's going to give this, this brief statement where God is going to talk about bringing salvation to His people. And He's going to expand on these promises later in chapters 4 and 5. Okay? Um, let's look at verses 12 and 13. Somebody read that for us, 12 and 13 of chapter 2. Salvation, the shepherd king, restores the remnant. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Mm-hmm. The king passes on before them, the Lord after his. So he makes a, a sharp change here. Now you notice here three times, I will, I will, I will. The Lord is doing this. Just as He took credit for the destruction that's coming back in chapter 2, verse 3, now He's going to take personal responsibility for salvation. He's, he's going to do this. He's the sovereign one. Verse 12, he's going to assemble or gather all of you, Jacob. He's speaking here about the true, faithful, believing people, the remnant. So if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, this idea of remnant shows up a lot, particularly in the prophets. Remnant. Anybody, what does that mean? What's the remnant? Leftover. Okay, good. What kind of leftover? In this case, in this, in this case here, it's a... Not bad leftover, but good leftover. Yeah, the righteous, the remaining righteous ones. Right. So um, these these are the ones who, in the midst of a nation of unbelieving, idolatrous, unjust people, these are the ones who remain faithful. There's a remnant. He will assemble them. So the Lord speaks of a time when the faithful will be gathered to the Lord. Um, 
Jesus speaks about this later on in Matthew chapter 10. He says, Go, speaking to His disciples, Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Speaking Galatians 6.16 of the Israel of God. So this is the true Israel. In in, uh, Romans chapter 9, we get clear teaching that not all Israel is Israel. So you have some Israel who's actually Israel. Meaning, those are the ones who really, they believe in the promises. Just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're Israel. True Israel is the believers, those who believe in the promises. He's going to assemble them here. Uh, You notice the sheep and shepherd language. This good shepherd is going to gather his flock. He's going to lead them out. God will deliver his people. This is a frequent metaphor all the way through the Bible. You see it in Micah 2.12, 5.4, and 7.14. That The good shepherd shows up in Micah three times in each of the messages. 2.12, 5.4, and 7.14. And then there's a whole slew of them through the rest of the Bible. You've got Psalm 23. Uh, Psalm 95, Isaiah 40, verse 11, Jeremiah 23, 3. Uh, and then, of course, when you get in the New Testament, who's the good shepherd? Jesus, John chapter 10, and then 1 Peter 5. Um, you've got that as well. Yeah, you're going to want me to repeat all those? No? When they say a noisy multitude of men, does that just mean they're around up following the Lord? Okay, good. So who are this noisy multitude of men? It's one of two things. Either it's, they're going to be noisy because of joy as the Lord leaves them out. It's going to be a party. Or they are delivered from the noisy enemies who are surrounding them with taunts. It's one of those two. I'm unsure. I kind of like the first one better. It's happier. But, um, but I don't know. Yeah. So good, good, good question there. Now, this... We're going to come back to this later. But this, these good shepherd, this good shepherd here who's going to lead them out is going to be over and against the bad shepherds of Ezekiel 34. So if you're not familiar with Ezekiel 34, maybe you can read that before you go to bed tonight. Couple that with John 10, you'll sleep great. Um, it's, a, it's, a great it's a great section about how the false shepherds hurt the sheep, but God says, I'll come and shepherd him myself. And then John 10, Jesus says, I'm that promised one. I'm the good shepherd. Um, so Micah here, this is also fitting for Micah, because where is Micah? Where is he again? He's not in the city center. He's where? Yeah, he's, he's the pastor of the pasture, right? He's, he's out in the farmlands. He's out here preaching. So sheep and shepherds would have been common. Everybody had been like, oh, I like that, right? It's also just biblical language. It's here all the time. Now, here we're going to do a little bit of how to study the Bible stuff for a second, okay? So whenever you read prophecies like this, um, we want to figure out how is it fulfilled, right? And... Not always, but often, there's a... Um, yeah. Do you remember Sesame Street? Okay. You remember Grover? Okay. So Grover, you remember he, he came up to the TV and be like, Near! Far! You remember that? If you didn't watch that, you'd, Near! Far! Right, so you had the near and far thing, right? right? Well, when you come to prophecies in the Bible, very often... There's a near fulfillment, and then there's going to be a far fulfillment. Thank you. Yes. Near, far. Um, But this is often how it works in the Bible. So what you're going to see is that there's going to be a a near fulfillment, which is going to be um, what we read earlier. 
So this, this first part of the message was given before Sennacherib and Rakshabagai. Yes, right, yeah, it comes down, thank you. Uh, he comes back down with his, his noise saying that God's going to, can't defend him against this king because he's too mighty. Um, all of this is going to come beforehand. He's going to give this, this word right here because do you remember what Jeremiah said? Jeremiah said, Hezekiah heard this. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And this brought him to repentance. That God can actually save us. And God actually used Hezekiah to be this good shepherd who led the people out. Okay? So, so your, your near fulfillment here is, is that whole scene. Um, where they, they open the breach, we see here. Hezekiah historically led the remnant out. If you read the rest of that Jeremiah passage, it talks about that. He's going to lead them out of the breach. Well, Hezekiah did that very thing right there. Hezekiah was the instrument through which the Lord led out his sheep. So they, they, they got out from the oppressor Assyria and would live for a while longer. But... There's also a far fulfillment, okay? One that is further away. This is one of the things, again, when you're reading the Bible, you want to remember that there's a story that runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We start in a garden where we walk with God in the cool of the day, and you end in a garden where you walk with God and see Him face to face. The whole rest of the Bible is how we got kicked out of this garden because of sin. How do we get from here to the other garden? That one big storyline is what we call the, it's the gospel message. The gospel message is, is given in the, from Genesis chapter 3.15 in a very shadowed form. That the seed of woman will come and crush the serpent's head. It's going to be a man who's going to be born of a woman who's going to crush the serpent's head. And the whole Old Testament is one word. Anticipation. Somebody's coming. Somebody's going to come to crush the serpent's head and be the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. Jesus is born. He's the fulfillment of this. And then everything from there is about Jesus. So everything is leading up to Him and everything goes out from Him. The whole thing, the way you get from Garden 1 to Garden 2 is through Christ. By grace, through faith, either in the one who would come or the one who did come and is going to come again. It's always through Him. Okay? So these prophecies, I think, are always best read looking for what's the near historical fulfillment and then realizing that Jesus ultimately is going to fulfill it in a full and final way. Example, when you read 2 Peter chapter 3 and he talks about the final judgment of the world, what illustration does he use? I guess we'll do 2 Peter next time. We're gonna, he uses the flood and the, the, the ark as being, there was a, a worldwide judgment in which God provided a way that if you entered by faith, that you would be carried through the waters of judgment and brought into a new world. Sound familiar? It's a picture of the final judgment that's going to come. Same thing here with this deliverance. Um, from underneath the nose of Sennacherib through Hezekiah. It's a picture of Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, who leads us out from the siege of sin. We were surrounded 
I mean, taunted by the evil one, as it were, enslaved, certain death, dead spiritually, but the picture is certain death is around us, but now Jesus, by His grace, leads His sheep out. He's the good shepherd, right? Who leads them out. Hebrews 13, the great shepherd of the sheep. This is who He is. And He takes us now into the church. We're called into the true Israel who are going to be preserved and kept to go into a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to be led out through the breach to be with Him to lead into the land of pasture forevermore. Jesus is the fulfillment ultimately of this. So all of Israel's earthly kings are going to fail, but there is a heavenly king who will forevermore be faithful and lead them and feed them, and this is Christ the Lord. Now, um, you don't, we don't turn there, but you can just write this down. Isaiah 11, verses 15 and 16 likens what God will do with Hezekiah and the Messiah, both, um, with what God did in the Exodus. So the Exodus is another picture of how God delivers people from bondage through a miraculous intervention into a new land. It's all, they're all the same. In one sense, it's all the same story. History repeats itself. It actually does. Because God is always working out this plan that has His fingerprints all over it with similar motifs time and time again, all picturing to Christ. He's the point of all of, of history. This is the story of the Bible. Um, does that mean I got it wrong? Okay. I, just, <laughs> uh, I hope not. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So we are going to be ushered into this new heaven and new earth. Okay, So this is, this is our first message here. A message of judgment and a message of salvation. Okay? Anybody have any questions about any of that that I talked about with false prophets or that I talked about with the deliverance that we heard about earlier with, um, with, with Hezekiah? Yeah, Jason. Just touching what you said about um, the fulfillment. When, when Christ says, I'm the gate, the sheep, you know, they'll come in through me and, and go up to my pasture, would, would it be a stretch to say he's, he's referencing this? Or just yeah, that's just one of the, like, I get another picture in yeah. that. Kind I'd of feel it's safer to take another picture. Yeah. But if I'm preaching this, I'd say, Jesus said, you go through the gate. Well, there's a gate here. So, you know, sometimes it preaches well. But I'm not sure that's the exact, <laughs> yeah. the exact idea. So I would just say it's just he's using an illustration that would be common. So it's a common thing theme, you got breach, you got gate, it's the same kind of thing. He's leading them out. Good. I have a question about the oppressed. Um, Is there any information about whether or not they had committed idolatry? Not as a punishment, Mm -hmm. but just as like a cultural acceptance? If the oppressed had as well? Yeah. Yeah, so idolatry is, is a refuge for the rich and the poor alike. Sadly. So there certainly were faithful rich and faithful non-rich. Um, but it tends to be that those who, the pattern anyway, seems that, as Jesus would say, that it is, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So by and large in history, the weight seems to be on those who have, who oppress the have-nots, and the have-nots seem to be more aware of their need for help, which oftentimes leads them to God. Um, which is so, uh, to answer your question, yes, there's idolatry among both the, 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 the oppressors and the oppressed. Um, but God is, God, God is judging particularly 
um, the oppression that comes against them here um, because evidently the whole top half seems to be really corrupted. So it doesn't mean that there's everybody in there. There's remnant everywhere. He's going to pull remnant out. But I would say by and large it appears that those who have power uh, don't have faith. So it's not always like that, but it appears that in general that's, that's what's going on. It's a good question. All right, message two. So that's your first one, judgment salvation. Same sort of pattern here. If you're wondering, we're going to go till 945-ish, um, and that's where we're going to try and, and pull the, the, the plug for tonight. Um, the way that chapter, the message two is laid out is, again, and you'll get this on your, your handout there that I gave you. Um, we've got... The judgment on the unjust rulers, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And then chapter 4, 1 through 5, 15, salvation promised for the nation. Judgment on the unjust rulers, salvation for, uh, promised for the nation. Okay? Here we go. Um, so God is going to speak against unjust judges, untrue prophets, ungodly leaders here in this first section of judgment um, on the unjust rulers. All three of these groups are going to be justifying their actions theologically, um, but he is going to respond with woe to you. Okay, because just remember, you can always twist the Bible to make it say whatever you want to really. Um, now, fact is, there's actually a right way to interpret the Bible, and we can, by the, the Holy Spirit, do that well. And we've already talked about a couple of those things tonight. You guys are, are keen to that, so that's good. But, but, but false prophets use the word too uh, to make themselves feel better often. But we're going to see that God says they ought not feel good, because He's going to be responding with judgment. But you're going to notice that the, the judgment for these unjust rulers is going to happen increasingly so. First, He's going to give silence. Then there's going to be silence plus darkness. And then there's going to be His absence. So it's going to increase in weight of judgment as He, he goes through here. So let's look at verses 1 through 4 first. The unjust judges. He's going to use the word heads or rulers uh, to, to describe them. Um, somebody read for us verses 1 through 4. Really a gruesome picture here of the way they're using their leadership. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people, and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, and flay their skin from off them, and break their bones in pieces, and chop them up like a meat in the pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. Okay. The them there, just to clarify, are the heads. So later the heads are going to be crying out. He's not talking about the people there. He's talking about the heads. But um, So these heads or rulers um, are, are, is another word for, for judges. These ones who are executing authority. Now God expects judges... And rulers to use their powers for, for good. You notice there in verse 1, what's he expect for them? Is it not for you to know justice? That's your calling. That's your job description, right? This is your purpose. This should be your joy. This is what God requires of you. Okay? Um, 
But instead, they abuse their authority by oppressing the powerless. And, and notice here their, the posture of their heart toward what God says is good and evil. What's it say there in verse 2? They hate the good and love the evil. It's the exact opposite of what God intends to be happening here. And then you get this, as I said, this, this gruesome picture here of what a shepherd should never do with the sheep who are under his care. Rather than tending and caring, they are torturing and consuming them. This is vivid metaphor of the way that these judges use their authority destroying people that they're supposed to be protecting. I mean, it's, it's a terrifying picture. I mean, when you really think about it, and some of you have likely experienced this, when you've been accused of something that you know you didn't do, and then the person who is an authority over you Use their authority to further evil and nobody could do anything about it. It is a helpless feeling. I mean, it's just utterly helpless. When you've got nobody to advocate for you, you can't do anything because these people have all the power. We're going to see later in Micah, they're in, they're in bed with the prophets and everybody, the princes, everybody's connected. It's all about money and power and who's at the table. doesn't matter who you trample on. You going to squeak? Well, you going to pay. And this is what's happening here. They're just crushing the people. I think it's a sad picture of what what happens when you become blinded by power. Power is a... It is either a wonderful thing when it's used like God intends it to be used, or it is a devastating thing when it's used against His purposes. Because this, this, I mean, this is dehumanizing here, those in God's image. They, they, they become a means to an end. They use their power and authority to control people and willingly trample them. Now, what's, what's interesting, I think, as we find this, is this, this gruesome picture, who are they end up being just like? Who, who, would have, who would have Israel and the rulers, they would have looked out from them and they would have said, who's wicked? Assyria's wicked. Because Assyria did this kind of stuff to people. They did ISIS-like stuff to people. These act- they actually did this to humans. God says, well, yeah, you hate that about them? You think that's wicked? Well, guess what? I see the way you treat my people and use your authority in the same way. It's like you're torturing them. It's like you're eating them up for your gain. You're, sh- you're just skinning them alive, God says. He says, you are just like the Assyrians. You're doing the same sorts of evils. Now, I, I do think we should see this indictment in Ezekiel 34 for a moment. Go over for just, just a moment. It's just to your left. If you hit um, Lamentations or Jeremiah or Isaiah, you've gone too far. Ezekiel 34. Listen, listen to this. Ezekiel 34, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even the shepherds. Thus says the Lord, God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should you not feed the sheep? Verse 3, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, 
The starved you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. With force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. There was no shepherd. They became food for the beasts of the field. Verse 6, My sheep were scattered. My sheep were scattered. Verse 7, Hear the word of the Lord. Because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food. And he goes on to talk about how he will set himself against you. Verse 10, I am against the shepherds. Then, verse 11, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. And then he goes on to talk about he will be the good shepherd. So you've got these bad shepherds who are using their authority for wrong, and God says, I will come among them and I will shepherd them. Which means when Jesus comes and says, I'm the good shepherd, he's claiming to be who? He's claiming to be God. Because he's fulfilling this, this, pers- this passage right here. So, so go back. Go back to Micah. Back to chapter 3 through 4 here. Um, where we see this egregious use of authority by the judges. And then in verse 4, God's going to go silent on them as a sentence of judgment. They close their ears to the cries of the oppressed. Well, God is not going to hear their cries when they cry out. He then moves on now to the untrue prophets. We've already seen him yell at them, well, talk to them once, call them out once. Well, he's going to do it here again, verses 5 through 8. Somebody read 5 through 8 for us. Chapter 3. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Mm-hmm. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Good. All right. Um, Why don't we go ahead and try and open the doors just because it's a little warm. Let's just see if we can make that so people aren't passing out here at the end. Hang in with me. Um, In verses 5 through 7 here, these these prophets, they're supposed to be wisdom receivers and truth speakers and light givers for the people, but they're not. They lead my people astray, he says here. God's people are deceived with lies from the people who are supposed to be giving them truth. Right? Now, they say peace when they have something to eat. I mean, they, they speak well of people who do what for them? Who feed them. Who, who, who line their pockets. But they're going to speak ill of those who won't support them. These are prophets for what? For hire. These are prophets for hire. Rent a, rent a prophet is what this is. You might think of like Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas from 1 Samuel 2, or the, the Levite in Judges 18 and 19, who was just out walking around, and they're like, hey, you want to be a prophet for our cult? Sure, let's go. They bring him on in and just pay him, and he's, he's happy to go. Greed was their guide here. They are, they are prophet-seeking prophets. They're looking for money. They're, they're going to preach people-pleasing messages to stack up their bank accounts. To them, money spoke louder than God. This is what moved them. 
And I just want you to know, I mean, like, people can make a lot of money off religion. Because they know it means something to people's hearts. And, and people, people make a lot of money sometimes. And they, they can use it wickedly. I mean, they, they can use their authority wickedly. These guys are using it wickedly. And they're playing on the people's affections for God. That's, I mean, this is serious. Great judgment awaits. They're using their flock to advance their careers and pad their pockets. You know, this, that's one of the things that I hope is becoming less prevalent. But used to see often was pastors who would hop from place to place to place to place to, place to kind of move up the ladder. You know, you always feel, I got called to another place that pays eight times as much and, you know, whatever it may be. And I'm not saying, listen, I've, I've, I've gone from one church to another. Um, but I think there's, there's ways for it to, to be right and ways for it to be wrong. Um, and these are for money. And it affects their message and it affects their lives and it affects the way that they relate to people. Well, if you notice here in verses 6 and 7, um, they withhold truth from people. Well, God is going to withhold truth from them. God will withhold revelation and light from those who are supposed to be light and give light. And you see that phrase there, they will cover their lips. Um, anybody remember what, what a leper is supposed to do when he walks through town? Yeah. Unclean, unclean. And as he yells it, he's supposed to cover this so he won't spit on somebody and make them unclean. I think God is saying they cover their lips because they're unclean. Like unclean lepers, they make people unclean with their false teachings. It's one of the most terrifying things. And when you watch, and I'll just pick on Joel because he's easy to pick on. I don't mean pick on, but like just, just, just say it. Like when you look at three services of a, filling that room, if you've ever seen, I mean, 20,000 people there. I mean, three services of that every Sunday. And I think sowing people to love the world. Use God to get a promotion. Use God to make you feel better. Use God to make your marriage better. Use God to make your children act right. Use God for whatever is going to make you happy. Rather than God being your joy and your happiness, and His pleasure being more important than our own. It's just, it's terrifying here. You make people unclean. Well, you'll notice here in verse 7, God's judgment increases. He's silent, but now it's accompanied with darkness and uncleanness. But Micah, Micah here is set apart. Somebody read verse, verse 8 for us again. He's different. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare the, to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Yeah, so he's, he's different. He says, as for me, I'm filled with power. These guys got no power. Because sin has sapped it. He says, I'm filled with power because the Spirit is upon him. With justice and might. Because he's going to declare, he's going to declare truth. He's not going to sell out here. He is a true prophet speaking the truth of God. I think something interesting to note here. Did you catch what is part of his message? Justice. Justice. Remember what's been lacking in the nation because they're chasing idols? Justice. You've got injustice everywhere because they're not preaching truth. 
They're not chasing the true God. They're chasing idols. And idols are going to make you unjust. So a clear mark that you have God's Spirit is that you work for justice and holiness. That's God loves justice. He loves holiness. A clear mark that you have the Spirit of God is that you love the things God loves and you work for the things that God says matter. The ministry of justice must include also a message of judgment. So if you're really going to work for justice, you've got to realize that it's not just justice down here. Justice down here happens first with justice here. You're not ultimately going to be living a life that's just if you're not reconciled to God. Because the greatest injustice is that we are enemies of the Almighty. So what we need to do is we need to be reconciled to Him first in order for us to be able to understand what justice is and to be able to deal with others justly. Right? So, it is, it is unjust, as it were, to speak of justice and work against injustice if you don't speak of ultimate justice. Do you hear that? So I'll say it again. It is unjust to speak of justice and work against injustice if you don't speak about ultimate justice. So in our day and age, there's all this talk about we need to do what's right, we need to do what's just, we need to not, you know, we need, everybody needs to be treated rightly and all this kind of stuff. But we don't hear anybody crying about the ultimate justice that must come first, which is that God, who's been, who made us, has been offended and He needs to be satisfied. And the only way that's going to happen is, is either His eternal judgment is going to fall on you or it fell on another in your place. And He wants you to repent and to trust in the One, Jesus, who received that justice at the cross and to be reconciled with Him. One of the things Thomas pointed out that I thought was really helpful during our time of study of how, is how the pursuit of justice can actually become an idolatry in and of itself. To where this, this thing where we're going to treat everybody right can become an idol if it's void of this. If we're not doing this because it makes God look glorious, then we've missed the whole point. And it's not actually justice. It's actually another form of injustice. Last thing I just want to say about this, and this is for... For everybody in different ways, for those of you who are pastors or aspire to be, or for those of you who love your pastors, um, hopefully you fit into only those two categories, um, do you just notice, how do you think it feels to be Micah here? How do you think it feels to be Micah here? Lonely. What? Alone. Yeah. This is a lonely spot to be. As for me, over here... All by myself? Like, this is a lonely spot to be. I would say he's energized, but in like a dark way. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a weight that comes. I mean like dark within his feelings. Yeah, so there, there, is a, there is an awareness that you have of need for God and the presence of God that is in the midst of the weight. There's, he's actually going to say it later that he see, it seems like he's in darkness. He says, but I have light, right? So... Um, but but it's, it's a lonely place to stand in, in, in this cross here. It's popular today to say, let's work for justice, let's do that. That's popular right now. 
But to say, wait, 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 that's actually idolatry if it's not about God first. You start running because that's, that's, that's not a popular place to be. That's not going to go well on CNN or Fox, okay? It's just not. So, those who speak for truth at times will face threats of safety, security, ostracism. Yet, as you mentioned, there is going to be a comforting in, in knowing that you're doing what God wants you to do that, that will carry you through. So, you who are pastors, who aspire to be pastors... Stand. It's better to be alone and with God than popular and without Him. And Micah here, Micah here models that for us well. And for those of you who love your pastors, pray for them. Because there's a real temptation to please people. Right? There's a real temptation to please people in a bad way. You know, to, 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 to be more pleasant and, you know, to get more people to be here and all that kind of stuff, which can happen if you just adjust some stuff. Right? So pray. Well, there's also ungodly leaders here in chapter 3, verse 19. This are, I mean, 9 through 12. These are both civil and religious leaders. They're all corrupt. It's kind of a catch-all, I think. Somebody read for us 9 through 12 here. Maybe somebody who hasn't read yet. Read it out loud, chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads heads give judgment for a bribe, priests teach for a price, prophets practice divination for men, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Mm. Thank you. He says, hear this, you heads, you rulers who detest justice. Right? That word detest, it's a strong word. It means to abhor. It means to loathe, to be repulsive. It's the word that you often see um, abomination. When you see God says something like abomination, it's, it means it so offends you that you're nauseous. These rulers are nauseated here by justice. They hate it that much, it, that deeply. And because of that, they make crooked all that is straight. They, they make it crooked. They... They twist it. They don't like where the straight road leads because if you're going to be, if you're going to cut it straight and you're going to do it according to the word of the Lord, that's going to lead down a path that's going to have humility, that's going to have sacrifice, that's going to have service, that's going to not be about profit and ease and comfort and power and everybody knowing your name and you being popular. So what they do is they twist that road. They pervert it. That's what, mean, that's what pervert means. It means to twist something. They distort truth to serve their own ends. They misuse their power and their their position here. So much so, verse 10, tell me about how they build. With blood. What does that mean? They don't care who they're contributing. That's right. They don't care because, listen, it's a prosperous day. And when it's a prosperous day, listen, what what do you get to do? You, 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 you want to make time for, for building stuff. And often that's a recipe for the rich to do what? 
Become richer how? Yeah, you're going to exploit people. Cheap labor. Slave labor. I mean, when you look at that's what that's what really fueled the slave trade in America. It was, what's the best way to get cotton? What's the best way to get tobacco? Well, rather than paying white people, why don't we just go kidnap a bunch of people from somewhere else and bring them over here? And they're going to have no rights. And we're going to just say, actually, they're three-fifths person. They're not actually really humans. So we're going to make them less than people. And we are going to now use them to line our pockets. I mean, that's, this, is just, this is what humanity does. When you have a God who's not God, and it's money or power or whatever else it is, you're going to exploit other people for your own profit. That's exactly what's happening here. They built Zion with blood. I mean, in, in Solomon, Solomon in 1 Kings 9, it talks about the fact that in all of his prosperity, you know what he loaded up on with? Slaves. He had slaves. In, in the heyday, in, the, in the, the day of peace, when everybody thought of, you know, um, Israel was amazing. Well, it was, it was on the backs of slaves. Verse 11 here. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Financial gain is their aim instead of faithfulness. Listen to what Exodus 23.8 says about bribes. Exodus 23.8 You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. It blinds you. It makes you delusional. It makes you say that God is with them and for them, but the fact is He's abandoned them and it's against them. They're out of touch with reality. Remember idols? That's what they do. They're not real. And you become like them. You get delusional. And everything's about down here rather than here. That's what had happened in Israel. Everything had been about down here and padding your pockets and how do we keep this comfort and who can we use in order to get more. And it doesn't really affect me because I've got it. Well, he gives this word of judgment, therefore because of you. Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. This is a prophecy of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. The ground that's supposed to be fruitful because of God's blessing will become barren and fruitless because of their sin. The temple of the Lord is now going to be without the presence of the Lord. And it's just going to be mowed down. He says, that temple you guys think is all amazing in Jerusalem? Well, when God leaves it, it's just rubble on a hill. It's all it's going to become. God's judgment has increased here. He's now absent because Babylon's going to come and is going to sweep it all away. So this is where Hezekiah heard all of these things. And... Well, a hundred years later, Jeremiah used that warning to to try to wake up Jehoiakim. And it didn't work later, but it did work for Hezekiah in that first time. A couple things we should note here before we take our, our break for the evening and then come back and we'll do...
four through seven tomorrow, which is which is a great pace. So, um, first thing is, I think it's important to notice here that God gives warnings that have real meanings. So, so they they really do mean something. Now, for us, we can see this and be like, okay, I can see how that that meant something. But like, this is this is true for us as well. So, when you read through the Bible. One of the things, and I know since we have different churches in here, there's going to be some different theological perspectives here, but I think for the, for the most part, most, most people in here are going to lean more toward um, reliance upon the sovereignty of God and resting and assurance of salvation and all those things, which is a good place to land. Okay, I, I lean that way heavy and, and rest there. But I just want to encourage you to remember that, that you still read the Bible as it's intended to be read. So when you see warnings, they mean something. They're not hypothetical that are just kind of... No, they're real and they mean something. So when you read through the book of Hebrews, like it means something that you need to keep believing. It actually means you need to keep believing. Because if you don't get, keep believing, you will fall away from the living God. It actually means that. Well, how does that... That doesn't fit my theological box. Well, okay. That... Well, adjust the box a little because this is what it says, okay? This is what it means that. Now, I believe those warnings are a means by which God's people, it'll make you draw nearer to Jesus. That's what all the warnings are intended to make you do. It's supposed to stir faith to make you go, well, then I need Jesus more. Draw near to Him. That's what they're intended to do. But they really mean something. So don't read warnings in the Bible as like hypotheticals. No, it's not intended to paralyze God's people in fear. It's supposed to, rather, promote faith. That's what it's intended to do. So if you're, if you're someone who gets paralyzed by fear, remember, Jesus paid it all, all to Him we owe. He died. He took the full wrath of God. He rose from the dead. He says that if you are His, you are in His hand. None can snatch you out of His hand. You are His. True. Trust Him. Rest in what He's done for you. Okay? But, but don't let resting become an excuse for we don't really need to worry. There is, a, there is a sobriety that God's people are to have at all times. Now, the other thing, I think this would be good for us to be thinking about on the way home, and if you came with people, you can discuss it a little more, and if not, I encourage you to, to be thinking about it and processing it, is, is, is the question of, how does this happen among the people of God? Like, how do they get... How do they get there? Because it's easy on the outside of this to always watch Israel and be like, man, Israel's a bunch of idiots. How do they keep messing it up and they keep not trusting God? And I mean, God was there on Mount Sinai and then the golden calf, how that thing happened? That's so dumb. That's so dumb, right? We never do that. Well, actually, this happens all the time. And I, I, how does it happen in Israel? How does it happen in the church? How, how, do, we, how do we get to the place where... I mean, you could just look at, look at church history in America. And I'll, use, I'll use the slave example again. How does, how, in this building, this building, over there, when you walk past those stairs, if you look to the left of them, there's other stairs for the help to walk up and down. In this building. How, how, do, you, how do you get to a place where you can, with the Bible justify that there's some who just aren't the same. That just, it's just not the same. And that you can justify treating people differently 
and that you have different classes. And this is not just a white-black thing in America. It's a white-black thing. But, but I mean, when you look caste systems or tribal, I mean, it's everywhere. So I just need you to know, we're susceptible to this in different ways. And just because there's progress, praise God for progress, it does not mean that this is gone from us. It mutates, it takes different forms, it goes into all different ways. Injustice escapes none of our hearts. And what we need to be careful of and mindful of and watchful of in one another's hearts is how could it show up here? How might it show up here? How does it show up here? And, and, and to be open and honest before God's Word to say, Lord, let this not be us. May we not become a people who are consumed by idols that would turn away love from one another. To where we can begin to classify people by, by color of skin or by economic situations or Southern Baptist Convention by political affiliations. I mean, the, the Southern Baptist Convention right now is just, I mean, it's, it's on fragile ground over who you voted for in a stupid election. Listen, I, I just, it, it, it matters because it affects people, but the kingdom of God is bigger than this. And just to, to watch the the, the clamoring for power and wanting to be at a table where you get to have whatever it is we're clamoring for. I just think it's foolish and we need to be really careful. Because there's good things that God is doing in our day that we could easily become distracted by. And when you start doing that, you're going to start treating people as other. And it can come from skin color, political affiliation. It can come across all kinds of stuff. And I just think we need to be very mindful that we're not above this. We're just not above this. So talk about this with one another. What could this look like in our day? What are ways we might see it? And how might God help us? And might we be Micahs? You don't need to be a pastor or a prophet to be a Micah. Like, what does this look like in our day? The Holocaust is happening with abortion. What, what, whatever it may be, there are injustices that abound in our day that need to be seen and sought and spoken against. And it's not. It's, it's not an easy way. Jesus said it's a narrow way that leads to life. And, and we ought to remember that if, if this justice is in place, other justice will follow and must follow. But idols will tempt us away from that, which will create injustice toward other people. May God give us grace as we seek to follow Him. Let me pray for us, and I'll take a few questions if there's any. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would guard us from the sins which we've seen consume Israel and Judah. We thank you for Micah and his word, and we pray that you would help us to hear and help us to to not harden our hearts, not assume that we're above any of this. But God, might we be humble people who under your word are instructed and changed and led to repent when we need to repent. God, we pray for injustices may even be in our hearts now, in our lives, in ways we think about others. God, would you give grace that we might repent, and God, that there might be true justice done to where it would be pleasing to you and good for others. God, might you mark our congregation and the other congregations represented here and the others in this area and those throughout the world, God, that your people would be a light, a pure light that radiates unity and holiness and justice for your glory and for the good of the nations. In the name of Christ, amen. I just want to see if there's any questions before we, we dis- dismiss. Anything lingering? Yes? A practical question. If you think 
you have an idol in your life, but you're not sure yeah. how to classify it. How do you go about that? Great question. So if you think you have an idol in life and you're not sure how to classify best thing that I do is I have people around me that I trust. And I say, okay, here's the symptom. Okay? So in one sense, we can all be spiritual doctors for one another. We're all priesthood. So the priest, if you remember in the Old Testament, was all kinds of stuff, including kind of a doctor sometimes. So go to people you trust who know the Word and say, here's what I see. When this thing's happening, this is how I'm responding. This is how I feel. This is what I'm afraid of. Here's all my symptoms. Help me figure out what the root is here. And once we expose it, let's say it's love for money, or let's say it's affirmation from people, how, what are some practical steps that I can go about to, 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 to surrender this to God? And, and what are practical ways that I can love others better? You know, so if it's the fear of people, how do I encourage others uh, rather than seeking to affirm, get them to affirm me or whatever it may be? But I think doing it in the context of community is really, really important. So it's a really good question. Mm-hmm. So you talk a lot about justice and slaves, mm-hmm. um, but in Old Testament, in Leviticus, there are laws about slaves, and mm-hmm. you should treat your slaves. Yep. So um, your point is, is whether there should be slaves, or it's just about justice? Great question. In the Old Testament, there was a system that we would think of that's called slaves, it's a vastly different system than the American slavery that was based on greed and racism. The slavery in the Old Testament was a, was a, um, a system whereby an Israelite could, um, could basically think of it more as an employee-employer type situation where someone loses um, money or property or whatever and they really have nowhere to go. There's no welfare system. So what they can do is they can go to another Israelite and say... I want to serve you, and basically you can only keep somebody for seven years, and they will go and they will serve to work off a debt or whatever it may be. Um, and at the end of seven years, if you say, "Hey, listen, I I love this, I'm going to stay," then basically what they would do is they would nail you to the to the door to the wall uh, as kind of a symbol, which is pretty intense. But they would nail you to the wall, and basically you'd say, "I become part of my master's house. I'm with him." So you could you could do it. So it was it was not a system based on. The, the evils of kidnapping and slavery for furthering greed. It was a very different system that God governed. And it's really interesting. When you read through the law, in, in Exodus 21 through 23, you've got all these laws that are given. The first third of it is all, it's all laws about slavery. There's only one of them that has to do with the master. All the rest of them are, are things that God gives to protect the weak and vulnerable. So it's a very different system. It's a great question, though, one that makes your thinking. So good, good stuff. That's really good. So it's totally, totally different system. It'd be, it was all rooted in injustice itself. So it's a good question.